Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with my new friend, Mo Troper, about the band Jellyfish's 1993 album, Spilt Milk, an underrated power pop gem. We talk about what is and isn't power pop and how gatekeepers are a bummer. We also talk a bit about songwriting and how it's a muscle that needs to be exercised just like anything else. Mo released his album, Delatante, last year and also discusses how that's coming out on vinyl later this year. So keep an ear out. Or isn't an eye out? Hmm. Please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we talk about records we liked a lot when we were younger, and we revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. It's a lot of fun and a great foil to the main pod, so please subscribe. Okay, let's chat with Mo. Hey Mo, how's it going? Good, how are you? Uh, doing good. So we are talking about Jellyfish's 1993 album Spilt Milk, and that was released February 9th, 1993, and that was on Charisma Records, it's their second album. And what I'll ask is, when was the first time you either heard this record or, you know, this band in general? Yeah, um, so the first time I heard... Jellyfish was actually their first record, Belly Button, and I think it was 1990. Um, and I was in the eighth grade, um, and I really distinctly remember it, um, which I guess is is usually the case with like albums or bands that change your mind or world, blow your mind, change your world. Um, but uh, I had like some family friends that I would I would go see movies with and stuff, and I was like a huge Queen fan at the time, and so mm-hmm. we had like gone to see the Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire um, in theaters, and then they were talking about it on the. I was like you know getting drive back to my my mom's house or something, and they were talking about how I would probably really like this band if I was super into Queen, and they were like they were like really Gen X, um, like you know like. Uh, went to Lollapalooza and stuff like in the early 90s. So this this was like 05. And so they had like a copy of um, Belly Button in like a, a disc uh, book or whatever. And so we listened to it. And yeah, like I said, I was really into Queen at the time, really into the Beatles. I've been obsessed with the Beatles since I was like a little kid. So, you know, it, this was like a newer band that um, – kind of was like a mashup of all this stuff that I really loved. Um, and yeah, it felt like a little more modern to me. Um, and that was kind of cool. Cause like, you know, I was used to not really into, I was used to not being into modern music, um, at that point in time. And so, uh, yeah, it just like blew my mind. I think the, the, we you know we like skipped the first couple of tracks and it was the King is half undressed. I remember listening to, and just like, just getting chills, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then at that point I kind of like, uh, you know, I was, I was like an av, like a big time forum kid and stuff and would go to like video game forums and also some music forums. And so I would, you know, uh, YouTube existed then there was some jellyfish stuff that was on YouTube. Then, um, there's like a live concert, um, of them playing in new Orleans, I think on the spilt milk tour. 
And so I remember watching that when I was like, you know, the summer in between eighth grade and my freshman year of high school and just like, just getting goosebumps, like just being blown away. There's a video of them doing joining a fan club, which is on Spilt Milk. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he plays drums standing up. It just like looks awesome. I don't know if you're, yeah. if, if you're a kid who's starting to get really into music and like maybe wants to write music and stuff. It's just one of those bands that it, it feels like it can be, um, your thing. That's how it felt to me. I was like, this is my thing. Like this is a really unique, cool band and they just like look really cool and different. And, um, so by that point I was just like a huge fan, you know, I had sort of like, uh, gotten really into spilt milk. Um, I remember buying, I, I bought the CD or my mom bought the CD for me. Cause it was like, it was one of those releases that was on iTunes, but like some of the, for whatever reason, like you couldn't buy some of the songs or like you couldn't buy the whole album. Um, and so the first time I heard spilt milk was on CD and like some of the best songs weren't available on iTunes, like ghost of number one, uh, mm-hmm. bright, brighter day, I think like just, and yeah, just that band, it was just huge. It was just huge for me, you know? Yeah. Have you come across, I mean, maybe in forums or whatnot, have you come across a lot of people that are jellyfish fans? Do you feel like it comes up a lot? Um, yeah, it's weird. Cause like, not when I was a, not when I was younger. Um, you know, I, I think that when I was younger, it was mostly like me trying to turn my friends on to this band. Um, (laughs) and like, you know, having really limited success with that and trying to turn people onto this band so I could talk to somebody else about them. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, it really wasn't until like I started using Twitter, you know, like I'm, I'm in a, a power pop group chat now on Twitter um, that's kind of just become like a lot of modern power pop bands and some music writers and stuff. And, um, yeah, there are a lot of people in that, uh, chat, like, uh, the band barely March and like, um, Kevin from the band telethon and stuff. And they, they, I think were, had like a similar experience, like where they found jellyfish somehow, you know? Um, and like I know that they're huge jellyfish fans and I think it's the kind of band that if you connect with it at all, you're probably like a, a big fan, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, I feel like I've also met some, some like power pop fans that just like hate them, you know? So it's, it's either like, I feel like it's kind of like XTC in that way where it's like, you're not like a casual fan or just somebody who tolerates, jellyfish it's like if you've heard those records and you like that kind of music you're probably all in you know i feel like i've heard the name and uh jellyfish and before you got me to listen to it like i don't feel like i had heard them you know it's just like a name that's floating around i think a lot of times in my head i would get them mixed up with green jelly okay um which is a very different band um and also because of that actually green jelly is I always thought Jellyfish was like a band on the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's also Green Jelly. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but it also like, when you look at the videos of, you know, like the Belly Button era or even Spilt Milk, yeah. it feels like a band that would have been on the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. For sure, yeah. You know, like it feels like, you know, uh, Jellyfish with Pete Droge wouldn't be that, you know, far off. Sure. Or like, or like even, even like Gigolo Ants, I think is on that soundtrack or like Crash yeah. Test Dummies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, and that's something I didn't really know 
at all been like I think it, it wasn't until I was a little older and I had a friend who was like really clued into music stuff he had like an older brother who was really like punk or whatever and um, he was like this is just like 290s for me and I, I didn't really make that connection ever um, but I can I can totally see that mm-hmm. um, with like the uh, with belly button especially I think it sounds really like kind of a lot of the worst aspects of that era of recording, um, like really just sanitized and, um, yeah, like really loud drums and stuff. Even the production on Spilt Milk, I feel like isn't something that I'm used to hearing when someone tells me like, you know, it's like if I'm getting introduced to like a new power pop band, it's not usually the way it sounds like. You know, and we'll probably talk about it more, but like this, it reminds me production wise more like what like Red Cross was doing. Sure. Around that time frame. And it's not that like, that's like, that's kind of the weird discussion. It's kind of like, where does Power Pop start and end? And sometimes it feels like very narrow. Right. But also like it can, it's like, I I feel like I wouldn't call Red Cross Power Pop. But yeah. they have a lot of elements that lend it to be in that direction. But I feel like Jellyfish are, even though I feel like the production kind of kind of takes me out of what I assume Power Pop is. And that's actually what I liked about it, because I think sometimes that I feel like as much as I like Power Pop, it feels sometimes like a costume. People For sure. Wear. And it's like... While this band was really big into how they <laughs> showed themselves. Literally costumes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it also just feels like, it's like when you look at someone, you're like, that is that motherfucker. Like, yeah. that is that dude. Like, it's like, yeah. when I think of, like, Andy Sturmer, you know, like, Roger Manning, like, I feel like they are these people. Like, you know, Andy Sturmer, like, definitely. Like, he couldn't help but be this person. Totally. You know? So, but I guess like back to the kind of question of like what sort of makes something power pop or not, and I guess I'm already gone on a tangent off of uh, you know, but but it's an interesting conversation, and also uh, my other tangent is I have heard of the power pop group chat, and oh, no I have, uh, yeah, and I've I've coveted being a part of it. Oh well, uh, but, I mean, but I but I won't put you on the spot. You're welcome. No, uh, <laughs> I think generally like. The idea, well, okay, so a couple of things. So about the Power Pop group chat, um, pretty much anybody who asks is welcome if they're like nice and interested. I think that the idea, I think recently I've gotten a kick out of the idea that it's like this gate kept, like sort of <laughs> gatekeeping Power Pop to me is just like very funny. Um, yeah. But it's really not how it is. I, we, I mean, there are like 35 people in there and we'd pretty much like invite whoever wants to come in and then usually they'll leave after like two days because uh, yeah. it's like uh it's like you know 200 you'll pick up your phone it'll be like 200 unread messages of people talking about like just the stupidest shit um but it's been i mean it's a lot of fun but um yeah i mean in terms in terms of like i think a lot of people compare red cross um and jellyfish or, or i've seen them kind of like uh lumped in, in together they occupy like the same sort of sect of power pop um like they were both from california uh they both kind of had the like uh dr seuss character get-ups you know like striped yeah. pants and like really kind of um androgynous in some ways um 
And I think that, yeah, Red Cross is kind of like harder and, mm-hmm. and more like overtly campy, I would say. Um, but they played together, you know, like, um, I think I saw like a poster or something that was like Red Cross and Jellyfish and the Posies in like 1990 or something, mm-hmm. which, um, yeah, it feels weird to talk about Power Pop this way. Cause it's, it's kind of like inherently like deracinated music, but I think that there was like a Power Pop scene in the early nineties, maybe like right before grunge became like the scene in the nineties. Um, and a lot of bands like played together and were kind of like all doing the same thing or sort of got to the same place, like independent of each other, you know, which I think is something that's kind of interesting. And there hasn't really been a lot of discussion of that ever, you know, um, like, uh, all these bands, like, you know, Posey's Jellyfish, Material Issue, Teenage Fan Club, um, there was just, like, so much shit happening, like, in 1990, it feels like, of, like, mm-hmm. pow- power pop bands that, like, were on, on the scene. I did read your article. Um, uh, thanks. You know, just, I guess, to set that up. So you had the article, Power Pop is Camp. And I think that you make, uh, not that you need my approval, but you make a lot of good points. Yeah, and, and what's weird is that the title was originally Camp Power Pop, and I was really careful not to make, like, a sweeping claim that power pop is camp. So that title and sort of them like that, that was like an editorial decision that I uh, think what they were, I think that they were probably like, Oh, like a lot of old people are going to get really upset by this because this is like a, it, it seems like somebody is kind of like calling all power pop camp. Like that feels like kind of um, spicy or whatever. So I think that that's why they chose that title. But I don't think necessarily that all power pop is camp. I think that power pop and camp share a lot of similar characteristics. And I think that like, if you look at a band like Red Cross, um, I mean, that's like a, you know, that band just sort of like revels in, in camp. Um, and I think that they sort of like got out of it in the, in the nineties with like phase shifter and then show world. I think that they tried to be a more, conventional rock band um and i think that i think that it's weird we were talking about this in the power pop group chat actually today is there are a lot of power pop sort of like canon power pop bands like um big star jellyfish fountains of wayne they're all pretty different from each other and they're all pretty um separately like those are stylistically diverse bands. Like, you know, a lot of the songs on the first Big Star record are acoustic songs. And and that's not like loud, jangly power chords. That's not what you would associate with power pop. You know, Fountains of Wayne does a lot of like uh, novelty songs. Um, and, you know, Jellyfish on Spilt Milk, it's all over the place. Like there's some acoustic songs. There's like that Klezmer song, Bye Bye Bye. And there's like the... You know, the last song on the album is like a carnival song. Like the bigger point I think I was trying to make was like, it doesn't make any sense to think about power pop in terms of musical characteristics. Because when you think about the most popular power pop bands, they don't have a lot in common with each other. And they do a lot of different kinds of shit, um, even like across their own uh, discographies, you know. And so I guess like, I don't, I don't have like an answer. Um, 
I think it's a really hard question to answer. I think that a band is is a power pop band if they know what that term is and if they want to uh, identify as a power pop band, I think that that's kind of like all it takes because I think it yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> does that Well, make I sense? think I think no, yeah. I think that does make sense and I think that where that gets complicated though yeah. is oh, well, I saw someone tweet today uh something like uh you all keep calling things power pop, but it's just pop punk. Yeah. And, you know, then I'm like, I it's it's like a weird thing where it's like when I think of people that are like, I want to do a band that's like 82 hardcore. Yeah. And it's like I can I can think in my head what that is. But then it's sort of like or like the idea of like being a beat band. Yeah. You know? It's it's it feels akin to that, that. You're like, oh, so we're just going to do the D-beat all the time. But what if I want to, you know, spice it up a little bit? Right. Like, well, we're not a D-beat band. You know, it's like, well, it's like it feels uh, in in certain respects, it almost feels like being like we're a horror punk band. Yes. You know? Sure. <laughs> but <it's>... um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen that. I mean, people, I think. I, I think it's weird that power pop is like such a nerdy, it even feels goofy to say out loud. Um, like it's such a, it's such a dorky, like record collector guy genre of music, but in, in certain ways, like kind of like um, certain like punk or, or like heavy music subgenres, it's become like this walled garden of like old, weird assholes who have like a really specific notion of what it is. And I think that the bands that embrace the term power pop, they're not, um, they're, that's not like, um, I think that most of the people who feel really like, uh, rigidly about it, I think that they're not the people who are like making, really sort of compelling new power pop music. I feel like they're kind of like the gatekeepers, like these people who write like weird books that nobody reads and like, um, you know, maybe people who were in old power pop bands. I feel like there are a lot of sort of infamous power pop groups on Facebook where you'll see Mm -hmm. a lot of these conversations happen. Um, And I feel like there are a lot of bands, like, you know, a lot of bands who are, are in that group chat who I think, did sort of like arrive at power pop in this different way. You know, it's not like they're not like 60 years old years old. They're not like, Oh, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And then I just wanted to stick with, you know, like they fucking lost it when they grew mustaches and started doing drugs, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. And that's, that's funny though, because like when you think about, um, spilt milk, well, as much as, like, I, I feel like Queen is kind of the one that people would say, like you said at the beginning. Like, the the album, when, you know, it starts out with Hush, it's like, that's just straight up, like, you know, a uh, Queen thing yeah. to go into it that way. But also thinking about power pop is, like, it's like you wouldn't call, you wouldn't call Beatles power pop, or I wouldn't. No. But it's like, the, I think you write in your article, it's like ex post facto. You know? Yeah, so, totally. So after the fact, it's like in the same sense as like, well, no one really calls Stooges punk. Sure. But, you know, it's like, you know, you got to kind of cut the line somewhere, you know? Um, yeah. So, so in the way, it's like power pop in a way, though, is like, what era of the Beatles do you want to cosplay? 
is that's a really good point yeah and i i honestly think that you could make a case for nobody would ever i think that power pop is post beatles Mm -hmm. guitar guitar music i think that like it's sort of everything sort of goes back to the beatles um i think that like the thing about jellyfish is that they're sort of cosplaying like every era of the beatles (laughs) simultaneously really really well and i think that that's like um i mean i think that that's why people who love Beatle music are into them. But, but that's the thing. It's like, it's Beatle music. And I think that when, um, you know, I've had like similar issues, I guess, if you want to call them that, where it's like, there will be a band that sounds like, you know, just like some, just like terrible cliched warp tour band. And like, they'll call themselves power pop. And I think, I think in some ways that has to do with like pop punk is not cool. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think power pop is like particularly cool either. Like we were talking about how it feels kind of funny to say, but I think that it has some cachet right now that pop punk does not. And I think that like um, it feels a little more sophisticated than pop punk maybe. And so it's become like a buzzword that has lost some of its meaning. But I also think that like there are a lot of people who just like uh, are making like a new, version of power pop um and they're not like they don't want to dress up as much but they still want to like make kind of like sophisticated guitar pop music and uh you know like i said like a lot of kind of like older uh the old guard will get kind of like upset about that and be like this is not power pop weezer's not power pop you know that's kind of like this ongoing debate in those facebook groups like whether or not weezer is power pop because um and i think that what's funny about that is like uh, I don't really think that Weezer cared a lot about the Beatles. I don't think that they were explicitly mm-hmm. um, referencing the Beatles. So that would that would make sense, I guess, if your def- definition of uh, power pop is like this self-reflexive kind of Beatle music, then I guess Weezer wouldn't be power pop. But I just think that like, you know, that should be... Um, I think if a band makes music um, that they think can be best described as power pop and they're into that kind of music, then I don't know why they wouldn't be power pop. I don't, I don't understand this like weird litmus test. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, like you have to prove it. So yeah, exactly. It's like an initiation. Yeah. Uh, the society, maybe the, yeah, the, the Twitter group chat has to decide. Yes. If it's, yeah, if it's yeah we have to vet you. Pop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of conversations in there too, but they're mostly in jest. You know, yeah. Um, like, I wouldn't consider. Th- there's like a thing where it's like it's almost it depends on the day, like what I would consider power pop or not, because like it's almost like depending on who I'm talking to, would I say Weezer is power pop? And I would almost say they're not power pop by the sake that they were too successful to be power pop, right? But it, but it's like, but I wouldn't say they aren't. For sure. So I know that just sounds like a riddle, but. You know, it's it's they they're doing everything that we would uh, categorize that someone did in other power pop bands. Yeah, but they were too successful. Yeah, yeah. totally. So. That's a real thing too. I mean, even with Big Star, it's like, what's the difference between Big Star and like Thirty Eight Special? You know, and it's like, oh well, Thirty Eight Special had hits, and <laughs> I think that like to the uninitiated or whatever, if you listen to Big Star, you're just like, this is a classic rock band you know um 
And I think that a lot of it has to do with this like mythos. Um, and I think the power pop is really into, into that, you know? Yeah. Um, if the darkness hadn't blown up or like if, you know, um, like my chemical romance when they made like the black parade or something mm-hmm. like maybe they would. Yeah. Be, a lot of elements there. Uh, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like cheap trick feels really successful. And also they feel like they fit into a lot of like, uh, kind of the hair era yeah. you know, things, but I feel like they're always grandfathered into, you know, being considered a power pop band. It's just right. by, by outfits alone. Sure. You know, they are allowed to, uh, so they're, yeah, they're like the most successful one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, I guess the, what is, what isn't thing is such a hard circular argument that yeah, we'll never have know. a real answer to it. But I think that's true. So I guess by that token, we should go back to talking about jellyfish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's a really, they're a really interesting band. Like it's when I, there's a few like documentaries you can watch on YouTube that are probably like under 10 minutes, you know, about like the rise and fall of rise and fall of jellyfish. Right. Um, and, but wouldn't the biggest rise and fall thing that probably kept them from being successful is having a singing drummer? Uh, that's a good question. Um, what, do you think so? Do you think so? What are your thoughts on that? I've never really considered that as a obstacle. I would say most people would say it's an obstacle. I don't. I don't tend to care about things like that. I've heard people yeah. say like, I don't like any bands. People have said it to my face. A guy that sings and plays bass that I don't like any uh, bands that have a singing bass player. <laughs> and, okay. And then I'm like, can you <laughs> say that with any authority? You know, it's like. There's plenty of bands. Well, I don't know. That's a, it is an anomaly to still. It's not like a common thing to have a singing drummer. For sure. You know, so it's I can't think of many. And usually when they get to that point, I don't really understand why they didn't. Why you know I, I think probably is reluctant to, but uh, I don't know why he didn't just sing at that point. You know. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, because they were like a major label backed band they could have probably pretty easily expanded their touring lineup to include like a a standalone drummer um i think that he tried to counter it a little bit with the stand-up drum set and i think that maybe it was an obstacle in the sense that it was just to that band's detractors just seemed like one more gimmick you know yeah like oh not only is he singing he's is he a singing drummer he has to stand up you know and like yeah um and they tried to, I mean, it's weird because that band initially, like, um, they were kind of these, like, weird MTV darlings when Belly Button came out. And then sort of as they were recording Spilt Milk, like, the landscape had just changed completely. And I don't think that that's how they were received when Spilt Milk came out. Um, and I think that you can see them kind of try and consciously dial it down, like, like Andy Sturmer, especially he started wearing like turtlenecks, like black, like all black yeah, um, and still looked nice and kind of classic, but more in like a modish way. He didn't have like, you know, pink Kool-Aid hair and like the long, the, bo- the long bottoms and the top, the doctors who stop that. Yeah. So I, I think, and like, you know, I'm pretty sure Roger Manning got rid of the dread extensions. And um, I think that they really were conscious of the fact that their gimmicks were 
beginning to like interfere with their music or the way that their music was being received. And they tried to correct that as much as they could. But by that point, I think they were just too fucked, you know? Um, yeah. Which is a yeah, shame. I mean, yeah, it's like a timing thing too. It's like this record is 93 and that, that sea change had already happened with, right. you know, the grunge, you know, grunge has taken over everything. So I think like it really was like, if it would have been a couple years earlier, yeah, potentially, but I don't, it's like Red Cross didn't, Red Cross just kind of stayed around sort of and, you know, different. So it's like they've succeeded now just by not breaking up, you know? Right. Totally. So, so it's like to the way that people viewed success at the time, it was definitely like a timing issue, but there were so many like fits and starts within the eighties of like what was going to be the next big thing. Right. You know, like just those little trends. Like if you think about like, I don't know, like the Jason and the Scorchers kind of like when that kind of mid eighties kind of rockabilly ish kind of country thing started punk country. And then it's like, I feel like those, those bands were eaten up by, you know, the major labels at the time, kind of like a post X kind of thing. Sure. Um, and then there were all these little things that should have been the next thing. Right. You know, and so it was it was like all these little pockets building within that 10-year or even less than 10-year period throughout the 80s that led to something like Nirvana, you know? Sure. And so it's, uh, you know, it's just by the time, like, you know, it was there, it was just too late, I feel like, with Jellyfish, you know? Definitely, yeah. So. Um I mean, I think that what's what's weird is that like Spilt Milk was it also wasn't an indie band. I think that, you know, in some alternate reality where Jellyfish is associated with like the Elephant Six Collective and that record comes out, you know, it's like a recorded on a four track or something. I think that maybe it would be different, but they were unique in that they were a major label band um, that released a record like that at that point in time. And I think that that they're not. They had no indie bona fides, um, and so they couldn't be, they couldn't be sort of like saved by that. Um, they just are like one more kind of failed. Yeah, that is a weird spot for bands to be in, and I you know it's I say it's a weird spot, but these bands are like infinitely more successful than anything I've I've been a part of, you know. But it's like with in the similarities with the kind of comparing them to Red Cross also kind of works in a way because. Like Steve McDonald played on a few songs on Belly Button, like played right. bass on it, and so they, like we were kind of talking about, they were contemporaries that shared ideas and stuff like that. But like Red Cross would have, if the kind of Paisley thing, you know, the outfits and you know the Dr. Seuss thing didn't pay off, they could essentially go. It's like you can go back home. Exactly. You know, it's like you have a scene that you existed within before that you could potentially like you knew that you could go back to i guess the same way that's like any of us i guess speaking for myself maybe you as well it's like we kind of exist within some sort of diy networks however we want to phrase that right and like it's but when people when people that you know like if they came from like music colleges or whatnot and they, sure. they only kind of understand i call it like a top down kind of thing like it feels like if you know a person that came from like they were a kid that liked Radiohead and then they liked Interpol and then they, we kind of Venn diagram get into the same things. I feel like those people sometimes have a little bit harder of a time acclimating to the idea of DIY because 
they've been kind of sold it in a different way. For sure. And I wonder if the members of, I and I don't know their credentials, you know, that someone could tell me after this that they played in some hardcore band, you know, <laughs> that I don't know about. But it sort of feels like it's like they were kind of fed the major label thing. And that was, yeah. that was the only thing. Sure. I think that that's largely true. I think that, um, I mean, the only, the only one that I've talked to or interacted with in any way is Roger Manning, um, who I think is really cool. And I think that, um, I mean, I have no reason to think that any of them aren't cool, but I, th- I think that yeah. Roger, Roger Manning to me seems really legit. Um, it seems like he's still really into new music and like tries to go to shows of all sizes and tries to like, uh, whatever. Anyway, I think that, but I think then, I mean, I know that they were, I know that Roger Manning and Andy Sturmer were friends in high school that were both really into like jazz and then kind of Roger Manning went to school for music. Um, and, and that's why he's like such a sort of, uh, not sort of, I mean, he, he definitely is like a terrific arranger. And I think, um, Andy Sturmer was trying to make it with this like other weird post punk band called Beatnik Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, I do think that they were not guys that like, uh, I think that they were both like craftsmen guys, you know, like, like kind of like pro songwriters that maybe would have thrived in the sixties or something in like the Brill building. Um, and not really like they didn't have like a DIY trajectory in the same way that even like that, like Red Cross did or like Teenage Fan Club even. I feel like like they were on creation and like it seems like they played like a lot of gnarly punk shows like in the UK and stuff before they got big or whatever. Um, I think that they were like a like they had recorded a lot of the songs on Belly Button as far as I know before they even had a name. And then, like, their first show, I think, was opening for In Excess at Wembley. And so it's like they were like a studio band um, that were kind of like uh, almost like the monkeys if the members of the monkeys wrote their own songs like and yeah. played, all their, played all their instruments. Like, now we have to, like, pretend we're an actual band. Um, and yeah, it's funny to think of spilt milk as like a flop or whatever, because it probably sold like in the tens of thousands of, <laughs> of copies or whatever. And like, yeah. you know, some of those songs did chart. Um, like I think ghost of number one was like a pretty, a pretty like moderate hit, but yeah, for these people who are trying to really make it in a big way in the industry, I think that I can understand why that would be a disappointment, you know? Um, and and they haven't really, you know, like Roger Manning has done a bunch of stuff with a bunch of artists of different sizes, but I think Andy Sturmer kind of like um, now has like a, a hermetic life and um, writes for cartoons under a pseudonym and, you know, produced Puffy Ami Yumi and stuff. And so he is doing like the, the big time. I think he ended, he ended up getting into what he that's like the role he was born to play kind of, you know, and jellyfish was this like distraction that he seems to have no interest in, um, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what's funny about it is like those things feel like successes. Like if the end goal is like, you can write for cartoons. I feel like you've won in my head. Yeah. me too. I don't know. (laughs) Just like where I'm at in my life, you know, but kind of back to like when I'm thinking about, I guess on the West coast, potentially, 
there's the idea of like if you want to kind of make it you move to LA I mean, right obviously but on the on the east coast I feel like in music it's probably is still LA but it's like you know people will be like I'm going to Nashville right <laughs> you know it's like wh- wherever kind of place I'm going to New York City and I'm gonna make it big kind of thing um you know, it's I so kind of going back to what I was I was kind of mentioning. Like, I don't say it to any discredit. Like, you have to exist within like a DIY network. I feel like in some ways it's probably hurt me and my self confidence. Sure. You know, existed. <laughs> you know, but like, you know, so it's like, uh, but it's it's strange to kind of like not kind of like have that safety net, like that ability to kind of like fail since everything is such like a high level. But but it's also like. I mean, those people end up like working so much, like being, being, if you can get into like that session network, yeah, like that is a life, like even with this record, like, you know, when you get into the idea of like John Bryan and Lyle Workman playing on this record, those are those people that have made that their life to big successes. Totally. You know, so. You know, just kind of like comparing it's it's interesting to kind of think of like Andy Sturmer and Roger Manning. If if the kind of the whole the whole discussion of like what is a success and what is a failure, right, is is so interesting. You know, because like you were saying, like hey, let's say it sold forty thousand copies or something. Like that's I guess that's bad when you're on. I don't charisma is probably a, you know based off of some other major label. Yeah, I think that there were, yeah, totally. And the band that they were in before, like, they were on Atlantic. And then, so technically, I think when they started, they were on Atlantic and then just weren't wanted, you know, in that capacity. But it's like, if you sold, if you sold 40,000 records on, like, Discord or something, or, like, you know, you're, you're great. Sure. (laughs) But, like, yeah, if you sell 40,000 on, you know, Atlantic or some subsidiary, it's like, Oh man, he didn't quite do it. But those people that don't quite do it are like your Matthew Sweets that are still rolling through everybody's town and filling, you know, eight hundred cap venues or something or five hundred. And I'm like, they don't sound like failures to me. Sure. I mean, some of it is like return of investment. I think where when you have like a band that recorded an LP for you know eighteen hundred dollars or whatever, and like. And like ended up selling forty thousand copies, and it, it you know it's like a sub pop release or something that's like completely different. Um, I think with Spilt Milk it was a you know it was an album that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to make. You know yeah. was was sort of like this weird Pet Sounds of the nineties where like you know it was recorded in multiple studios and like they burnt through engineers allegedly. There's another story of like it supposedly being the only it was like a the sessions and the band were too demanding for John Bryan, which I think is really crazy because he's, you know, this like sort of notorious perfectionist, like won't release any solo music, even though he's sitting on piles of songs. So it's like, fuck, like if this was too much for John Bryan, like imagine the kind of uh, like. Andy Sturmer must be like a tyrant or whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but I, I think, so I think it's, it's a lot of it is like sort of pr- proportionate to, to the amount of, t- you know, it's a record that costs like all that money to make um, two years to record. And uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's you can find there's a Stacko tracks release that they did that um, Omnivore, the record label, did a few years ago that was Belly Button and Spilt Milk without the vocal tracks, uh, and and you can find some of it on YouTube. It's like basically unmastered instrumental backings, and they're like incredible. Like it's it is just this mess of instruments, and you can just hear how detailed those arrangements are. Like there will be like a piccolo flute that like comes in for like two bars and then is out and you don't hear it anymore for the rest of the album. And it's like, you know, I just think that that record is incredible and it grabs a specific kind of person because it's literally not an album you could make anymore. Like yeah. you, you could not, it doesn't matter like how accessible recording technology is. I feel like you cannot, there couldn't be like a, a big sort of Hollywood record with like that like sounded like an even more hi-fi sergeant peppers you know with all this <laughs> like with like all this orchestral um shit i think that the orchestral stuff is just such a cut above and it becomes so clear you know like oh roger manning really did go to music school um and you know that's something that is like totally unique to jellyfish um it's like almost more orchestral than ELO. Like ELO really just used strings, but Spill Milk, it's like fucking everything is on that record. It's like, you know, English horn, timpani. Uh, you, like you could you could play a game where like you try and identify all the crazy instruments that are used on that record. I kind of wish they were like listed. Um, there's like banjo on Ghost of Number One. Um, there's just so much shit. And I think that, um, yeah, you just like, you listen to it and you were like, I mean, I, I listened to it and I'm like, well, this is incredible. But like, what were they thinking? Like, what was that label mm -hmm. thinking? Like, there's no way this could have sold more than 40,000 copies in 1993, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, I don't know how to ask the question, but it's like, when I hear bands doing this and you think about, you know, the stories of like Brian Wilson and the smile sessions and whatnot, it's like, what is ultimately the point of doing all of that? I guess that's the question. Like, it's like, I, I want, I want people to, I want that to exist, yeah. but it never seems to pay off. <laughs> it's like every story you've heard of that thing of like, you know, we went over budget and we piled every single thing. Most people that listen to your record are like guitar big, you know, just yeah. like no one gives a <laughs> shit, you know? Sure, totally. So it makes it where it's like, it's hard. It's hard for me. Not that I've ever been in this situation, I pick out those things, but it's it's sort of like I don't I don't know if it was worth it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, um, it is to you. <laughs> it is to me. Yeah, and it, it is to. I mean, I think if it's if it's on the major labels, dime. I don't know. It's as somebody who grew up in DIY. If a label was like, we're going to give you a million dollars to make like a guitar pop record. I would be like that in itself is success. Like I can mm -hmm. do, you know, just the craziest shit now. I mean, I think that the, the Brian Wilson stuff, like in some ways it set this really bad precedent. I think the people who really love the beach boys and I'm, I, I would imagine that jellyfish did. I think it's really easy to kind of get caught up in the, like the, that mythos, you know, like mm -hmm. just how crazy that environment was. And like, how everything had to be perfect. And I can see those guys. 
I, I can, I don't know if this actually happened, but I can imagine Andy Sturmer and Roger Manning kind of romanticizing that, like being in California, trying to sort of make the, the next, the smile of the nineties or whatever, and sort of like getting kind of swept up in that chaos. Yeah. And then it's like, you have a, your album actually, you know, you like suddenly you realize you got to finish the album and like, you know, it's kind of like Brian Wilson without the, without everybody calling you a genius, you know, <laughs> or, or without being like, without being rich and famous, you know, it's like, yeah. um, and so that's, that's gotta be pretty painful to, to know that you made something as good as like your idols, but for there to be like no real acknowledgement of that. I mean, I think that that record came out and people were like, you know, like, uh, the funny guys are back, like rocks, funny guys are back and kind of like treated it like it was almost this like novelty record yeah. because they just fucked themselves so bad with like the, the stage get up on the belly button tour. And I think that that's gotta be pretty bad, you know? To, yeah. To, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. Cause I feel like when I first kind of started like just checking them out from a distance, I, in a way it's like what is this cat in the hat bullshit you know yeah totally. like but the record is really good yeah but the to the to what i feel like kind of is a bummer about this era is there are certain choices that i feel like they probably were even like twisted their arm to like production kind of things yeah where i think like because of the way the guitars are like mixed and the drums I feel like you lose a lot of that and you can kind of dig for it. But like, I wonder like what this record would sound like remixed. Sure. You know, even because there's, I feel like there's so much it's trying to give you. Yeah. But it's, it's like, it's like you created the best thing, but at the end you just have to like save it as a JPEG or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. <laughs> you know, cause so it's only so much is going to like come out at you. And at, cause after all of this where I'm listening to it on streaming, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's like the pono conversation with neil young it's yes. just like it's like i get that it's like the best fucking thing dude but sometimes i just got to be in my car listening to, you know on the beach yeah so i'm sorry i can't purchase a pono player to play in my fucking <laughs> oh, i forgot you know, about that that 2010 <laughs> honda you know so it's like you know that that's what it feels like you know so i i feel like it's almost like what's the point of it you know i want there to be a point i want that art to exist and i love these stories sure and but i feel so bad for yeah these people that do this yeah totally (laughs) it's uh i mean i think that one thing we haven't really talked about yet is that just how good the songs are to me and -hmm. i think that it's also it is almost this like blessing and, and curse if you have kind of this arrangement brain and you are also like a songwriter um, or like, I, I feel like I know a couple of people like that who are just sort of really fret over arrangements and like, you know, how are we going to bring this part of the song out and stuff? And that's something that I also sort of like associate with music school or like people who do like sync stuff for a living or whatever, you know? Um, and I guess like, I think a lot of the songs on Spilt Milk would sound fine. I mean, there are videos of them playing these songs like unplugged essentially. 
And they're also like, there's a box set that came out at the beginning of the 2000s called Fan Club, which collects a lot of demos. Um, and there's a lot, there's one of the, it's like the three of them. It's Roger Manning, Andy Sturmer, and Jason Faulkner, who was with the band for Belly Button, but left before Spill Milk. And it's just Jason Faulkner playing acoustic guitar and the three of them singing, and they do The King is Half Undressed. And they do like all the three-part harmonies and stuff, and it just sounds like incredible. And I think that the arrangement stuff is like a cool flex. And I think for for me, like it is really crazy to hear those um, instrumental mixes. And just you know, when I first heard that shit, I was like, wow, I'm. It's like I'm listening to this record for the first time. Um, but it's also like maybe makes it harder for some people to take that music seriously. You know, when you do have like a klezmer like arrangement for one song, it's like all anybody can hear is like, if I were a rich man, you know, it's like, uh, it's kind of, I think some people, I think it is in some ways cheapening and made their music sound more retro than it actually was, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's like sometimes it's like, I mean, that's why I love like Super Drag and like Teenage mm-hmm. Fan Club and stuff because it's like, just play the fucking song, you know? It's like, just yeah. play the song on an electric guitar, you know? Like the melody's great. Um, and that is definitely a certain kind of power pop that um, I think is also cool. But I think at the end of the day, like what makes Jellyfish unique is the arrangements um, and just the fact that they were these studio rats Um but I think that the songs themselves are also like really terrific. You know, Andy Sturmer is like an incredible lyricist to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there are different kinds of good lyrics, but he was really influenced by like Elvis Costello and Patty McAloon from Prefab Sprout and stuff. So really kind of like literate, like flowery. Well, what's what sounds interesting is that as much as like when the record started, you know, I thought it was going to be like sometimes when I'm listening to Queen, I feel like it's like constant flexing and kind of like genre hopping to kind of like prove to you that like they, they can succeed music. at every yeah. single <laughs> angle. Yeah. You know, it's These like guys know music. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> and, you know, uh, but it but it, it settles into it more like I yeah. feel like it's like. I mean, like when I think about like New Mistake, New Mistake's like a song that I feel like making like playlists going forward in my life, I will put on like every playlist. Like it's that strong of a song. Totally. Like it feels like akin to like, you know, someone would be like, oh, you know, September Girls. Or, you know, it feels like one of those ones that you could reach for and kind of like this would be a good way for you to try and get into this band. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like, what what songs kind of stick out? If you were to have to like pick like one oh, shit. Uh, favorite song from the record, what would you pick? Um, I think my favorite song from the record, which is not necessarily the song I would try and recommend to like sell someone on Jellyfish, but it is Ghost of Number One for sure. Yeah, it's my favorite song on the record, and I think that. I think that there's just like something really funny about a band like this with a song about that, like about sort of like somebody who isn't really famous until they die. Like to me, it's, it feels so like vindictive. Like 
it's like, damn, is this how he, is this how Andy Sturmer like imagined himself? Like, is he essentially, is he this person? And is he like commenting on this? You know, like nobody's going to appreciate how brilliant this album is until I'm dead. And I think that some people like don't read it that way, but that's, that's how I read it. And I just think that it's, it's such a like unique song for that reason. I think that like the concept is, is still pretty novel. I don't know if like anyone has really written a song like that. Um, but, um, and then I think that it's, it's just kind of like, the entire band kind of like in a nutshell, you know, there's like the kind of like heavy verse sections with the, you know, um, with like the loud guitars. And then there's like the jingle bell, the jingle bells in the chorus and like the really beach boys part in the bridge. And, um, but I think that it's kind of like, I think you're right about new mistake. I think new mistake is like the, um, kind of like least fussy, song on the record and um also like a a great concept um but yeah I don't know it's it's tough I like um I like them all I guess I really like all is forgiven I know that like they were uh really influenced by like a lot of shoegaze stuff that was happening and so they tried to do like a jellyfish shoegaze song which I think is like really funny um and I don't know that song is I always like when that song comes on because it's like finally some fucking electric guitars after yeah. all the like, you know, penny whistles and stuff. Uh, yeah. Uh, congas. Uh, <laughs> so, so you know, I don't know. I like, I like it all. I don't think that there is a, I don't think there's a song I dislike on that album. Um, but, and and I think that that's like, you know, one of the reasons why I want to talk about it when, when you were like asking for album ideas because I was like, I don't know. It's not like the coolest album, but it is an album that I think that there are like no skips, you know, mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it should be, I mean, I guess you're saying that there are, there are people that hold it to this. I Now, now hearing it, I feel that I, I feel like they should be more like power pop canon if they're not already. I think they are. Yeah. 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 Um, like I, I don't, I don't, feel like i hear like now now that i've uh, you know a few months into hearing this band i'm like i don't hear anyone talk about it it almost feels like one of those things where you kind of realize it exists and you start seeing it everywhere too so that sure that could be you know my distance from it like i see it on flyers and things now you know oh crazy you know and i see like imperial drag and stuff yeah. on other shows you know and so so yeah and is that a band that you uh got into as well no yeah uh i i'm not crazy about imperial drag i think that the grays is awesome that record rochambeau which was jason faulkner um and john bryan's band for one record um and there's like some great stuff that that band did um but yeah as far as the jellyfish like uh you know extended universe goes uh yeah, I'm not crazy about Beatnik Beach or Imperial Drag. Um, I think the Roger Manning and Jason Faulkner both have really good solo records. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I was super excited when I found out about Imperial Drag because I was like, oh, hell yeah, like more jellyfish. And yeah. it's just like not like that, you know. 
Like yeah, a, did you did you ever get into like the Ringo album that they helped write? I did, yeah. Um, and th- those some of those songs actually appear as demos on that box set. Um, and so the first time I heard those songs were in that form, um, and then I finally listened to that Ringo record. Like, um, I was going to say a couple years ago, but it was probably like ten or fifteen years ago. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was just it's just really. F- Funny. I mean, that was that was probably like a dream come true for those guys, you know. And and the kind of like writing the, well, the failed writing sesh was like Brian Wilson, right? You know, as another kind of fabled thing that happened to them. Yeah. You know, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so many things that it's like so many near, or not even like near misses. Like that's still a success. It's like to be to be able to say that you helped write you know some brian wilson songs even if they didn't come out it's like you know who who can who among us yeah exactly (laughs) can say that and you know jason faulkner i think that's like an interesting thing that like he's not on this record but it's like it feels like there's so many it's like the ghost that's not on the record like he feels like he's such a big character within uh their lore but you know i mean it's just simply not on this album you know sure um yeah i think that's true there are also stories about how when they were recording the record they like had some conversation about inviting him back or something um and so i do think that there was like a conscious i think that when they were probably doing session guitar parts they were like play like jason faulkner Kind of, because he is also just like, I mean, that's that's the thing is like, it's cool to see footage of the band play those Spill Milk songs live because those songs are fucking insane. But I think that if I could choose, if I had like a time machine or whatever, I would probably want to see the original lineup, um, just because Jason Faulkner is a killer guitar player. You know, he was like twenty or whatever when when Belly Button came out and like. He's just like, yeah, it's just crazy how much he shreds for being, yeah. for being a kid. And like, uh, not even, not just for being a kid, but it makes it all the more impressive. And I, I just think that like, you know, it's just funny that to see this like young guy like play like fucking Brian May or whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, um, and uh, yeah. And yeah, I think that also his, his records, um, Jason Faulkner's solo records, I think, are are kind of like they're they're just very jellyfishy, you know. And like I think that um, Imperial Drag, I think, like it's not really like I would never say like you know recommended if you like jellyfish, but I feel like if you're into jellyfish and you haven't heard the Jason Faulkner records yet, like um, you're missing out. I guess I don't know. Um, they're just very like you know ornate pop records. Yeah, I think I, I wanted to kind of mention something too again about like John Bryan, uh, you know, being a part of it. Just like how many things like his hand has touched, yeah. and it, also the idea that it's like he, I believe he only has like the one solo album or yeah, not, I meaningless. Mean, but, yeah, and it's it's so wild because like how many things, it almost feel feels like he has like a fear of like just his name solely being on it like he'll he'll contribute to other people's project and has no issue with that 
but it's like if it's only his name on it then sure you know it's like a bigger weight and i don't maybe there's more reason to it it's not you know but uh also to think of like him moving on to like doing composing so many films for you know like paul thomas anderson the scores on so many films for paul thomas anderson and uh but lyle workman being the same way but for like apatow films you know? totally yeah it's crazy so. <laughs> um yeah, it's crazy how how much because I'm pretty sure like, um, Spill Milk was like one of the first sessions like that that John Bryan worked on, um, and then got involved with like Amy Mann or whatever. So, you really can kind of like, um, you know, there really is this kind of like jellyfish family tree, and it yeah. sort of branches off from Spill Milk. You know, everybody that had a hand in it, and um, yeah, well, yeah. Um, I guess if there's like anything, uh, I know we didn't really talk about like every track or whatnot, but I mean, yeah. we can go through <laughs> other parts if you had like other notes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think joining a fan club was the first spilt milk song I heard. And I think I mentioned that live footage. Um, but they, when they would play it live, they would do like a really intense outro where they would like do a false start and then like, I wished I loved him and like hold out the note for like 30 seconds or whatever. And I just think, I thought that that was really cool as a kid, even though now it, you know, feels a little like musical theater to me or whatever, <laughs> but there is kind of a, you know, like the people in jellyfish were really fucking good musicians and singers and like, really obviously practiced a lot to get to the point where they could play those songs live and sing those songs live. And, uh, so a lot of it feels like a flex to me, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that that can also be kind of a turnoff. Uh, but for me, I think it was just like, cool. It was not like anything, um, else I listened to or knew about, you know? Yeah. Um, so did you ever see the, the video of them on Letterman? Yes, where like Paul Schaefer is doing the like trumpet part with the yeah. he's like, uh, yeah. yeah, that is really. Somebody just tweeted about the Dinosaur Junior Letterman thing, um, where I guess it's like really similar, where Paul Schaefer's playing like tambourine or something. Have yeah. you seen that? Have you seen that? I I've watched a decent. I love watching the Letterman ones because yeah. of that, and like there's even on the Jellyfish one, there's like another drummer in the background because right usually it would be it would just be that. I don't I don't know what the arrangement would be like if they felt like it because there's a lot of Letterman where that doesn't happen but it's the rhythm section yeah it's like the basically a band playing with the band <laughs> so weird you know? so all you can really like visually see on that one is a drummer that's like playing along and he he feels like he's kind of like looking you know up at Andy kind of like trying to like figure out how to go along I mean it's for that type of person, it's like not that hard for them. You know, they, they kind of know they're just like session people, but still that kind of like looking for the cue kind of thing. They don't <laughs> really like know again. the song. And then <laughs> it's like, he's like half playing, like when it matters, you know, that kind of thing. Like when you're listening to like, like live Bob Dylan with like the band, it's like, even yes. if they don't know the song, it's like, they're going to like kind of go into it sort of. And you're, you know, and then now Years later, it's like you'll talk to a friend and be like, 
Well, uh, Levon was playing the beat backwards, but he settled into it. And it's like, the motherfucker didn't know the song. You know, they're they're really talented songwriters, so they can make it work. Sure. But some of it feels like that on there. Nothing's, like, technically wrong, but even some of the stuff Paul Schaefer does is, like, you know, a little much, you know? Yes. That's Um, all I remember is Paul Schaefer looking like he's performing surgery or something, like just trying to play the the right trumpet midi notes. Yeah. Uh, and it's like it's like he kind of also keeps looking over at Andy Sturmer or you know like the band for like some validation that it's like look what I added. That's also what it feels yes. like sometimes with it. Like I wonder. My point being is like I wonder like how it must have felt playing on Letterman, and it's like you're happy. I I'd love for there to be a video out there of like Paul Schaefer playing along with any of my bands, but also the kind of like thing like. This is maybe my first late night thing. And if Paul Schaefer doesn't nail it, then this is going <laughs> to continually be how people view my band for the rest of eternity, especially in an era where late night stuff was like make or break. Yeah, totally. You know, it'd be like if you're a comedian at the time, but he just honks, uh, you know, in between things, <laughs> you know, you know, so, so like how complicated of like a situation that is like, you know, thinking back to like that dinosaur junior video. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> just him honking along you know uh but like it's just like even with um you know like when like warren zevon would like sit in on like letterman and stuff um you know it's just like such a weird arrangement it's like they're i guess they're just gonna like play while yeah people are playing it's like you know uh whoever of the time like crash test dummies and he's just <laughs> you know like keyboard cat you know <laughs> that is exactly what it looks like yeah but so last year you released a i guess so i could say a double record because it's 28 tracks but you know so uh dilettante yes uh, came out in 2021 um so i i guess the question then is like uh so 28 tracks like uh, was there any kind of like conscious decision behind it like or something that maybe you were sometimes when i think of double records like it can be complicated you know i don't don't know if you know what i'm trying to say and i don't want to sound dismissive no you know it's it's like a lot of times when i feel like people try and nail uh double records like it's it feels like it's like well maybe 12 would have been fine but all that to say (laughs) all that to say um i what i did what i I do really like the record and um after i basically slided it um (laughs) no i love it but what's what's interesting too is i feel like what was always a bad thing about the double record is it's like 28 songs or however many songs it is uh and then also it's like an hour and a half you know it's like totally but yours is i don't know like 40 minutes if even it's like 50 minutes um and so we actually, so the label that's putting it out on vinyl, Bobo Integral, they're a Spanish label, and uh, they have managed to fit it on one record. So it's technically not a double record, um, and it just is a lot. There's just a lot of songs, and it's about 20 minutes longer than the other records I've made um, are. So, but yeah, I mean, it was a conscious decision to, it was like sort of a uh, uh, clearing out, like a, um, a lot of sort of bits that I was attached to, but that I couldn't finish or do anything with. I wanted to just put them in one place. 
um, and not think about them anymore. Uh, and so it was, uh, yeah, I guess conscious in, in that way. I mean, and, and so I think that like, I sort of wanted to create a, a patchwork, um, of bits, you know, kind of like guided by voices. Um, uh, or there's that, they might be giants album. Uh, is it Apollo 18 with the squid on the front? And there's like the second part of that record is like all really short songs. Um, so I, I, I think that records that are paced like that are really cool. That second grade record hit to hit that came out in 2020. I loved that record. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to make a record that was like all, like a part of me was like, you know, I want to just get it all out there and be done with it and not think about it anymore. And then also I was like, I want to make a record that's like this, you know, like short little bits. Um, um, yeah. And what, what, what is like your songwriting process for it or like your recording process? Cause when I, when you think about like, I don't like guided by voices, obviously a lot of stuff's kind of done in house, even when they got to like the, uh, almost major label type right. era of them. Uh, still was, I guess, like a patchwork, like you were kind of saying. Yeah. Um, so with kind of like always the trouble I have, and I, so I guess I'm kind of I'm thinking about my own songwriting. I've I've tried to kind of do that with songwriting, almost like you get a good hook and then you like it's like you move on. So it's like try and force myself to not just add things for the sake of adding things and kind of sure. just move on to another idea. It's like a hard thing for me because I always feel like something isn't finished. Like I never know when to kind of just walk away from it. So how, right. how did you get to that point? Was it just like, you're like, fuck it. I'll just kind of put it out the way it is. Or, you know, not sure if I'm asking it correctly. No, you are. I think, I think I understand what you're asking. Uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I had lying around, I had never recorded before. So I didn't really know like, it's not like I had all these recordings like archived and I was like, Oh, I'll just like put them in a playlist and release them. It was like, I had a bunch of stuff that was kind of like, you know, varying levels of complete as like iPhone, you know, memos or whatever. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to go and actually record them and just, uh, you know, there would be like, there are, there are a couple of songs on there that there's like literally just a chorus. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll just play drums for the length of the chorus and we'll see what happens. And, uh, that was kind of the philosophy was like, you know, um, let's just like do this in the most basic way possible. Um, and I think that even those little bits are like listenable enough that it would be fine if I had enough of them was kind of my feeling, you know, I guess like what I'm, I'll, I guess I'll be honest in what I'm asking is, is more like, uh, and this, maybe I'll see if I can't, uh, maybe I'll edit it out or whatnot. How do I get to a point where I know that it's finished or have the confidence to just like let other people hear it. If other people haven't touched it, that's usually what I'm used to. Like as someone that's like a bass player primarily, yeah. Like the idea of like it being, I don't know, either, you know, like my guitar playing on a, a thing that I put out is daunting. You know? Sure. Totally. Um, I mean, I think that, that for me, it was like, I mean, I think that th that dilettante was sort of packaged as like this fun kind of funny thing. 
And I think that that like was how I felt about it. Like I really, you know, like I said, I think that those songs are like listenable enough, even the ones that are like 40 seconds. But I think that I wanted people to know, like when you listen to this, like these songs are unfinished as opposed to the Bob Pollard school of thought or whatever, which is like all songs should be 40 seconds. Um, like I feel like most of the songs on Dilaton are obviously unfinished. So the only reason I was like okay with that or confident enough to do that is because I like that was the concept for the album. Um, and I think that like I'm, I don't really want to do that again. Like I don't want to make a habit of releasing unfinished songs. But there are times where like, you know, I'll have like a song that's two minutes and 30 seconds and there will be like some sort of uh, superfluous bridge and I'll be like sort of really attached to the idea of it being two minutes and 30 seconds because that's like the ideal song length and then I'll like cut the bridge out and I'll be like wow I just there's like so much more space now and like um, you know it's not this kind of like formulaic like and here's the bridge like you Mm -hmm. know eight eight bars exactly kind of thing um and i do feel like when you're able to just like i mean i guess i'm speaking for myself but i feel like i really kind of like think a lot when i'm writing and if i'm able to turn my brain off and just sort of like be intuitive about it and not like think about song length or come you know completeness or whatever as i'm writing it usually like leads to cooler stuff or stuff that feels more like real you know yeah yeah i keep feeling like the only way it'll be complete is if i get someone else to touch it because that's what i'm used to and being in bands you know and it's like it's like i know the point of me doing writing songs this way was that i'm the only one who touches it yeah and i may change from that point at some point in the future but it's like it's hard because then my mind starts going, well, but if this person played piano on this part, they would really make it pop. And it's like, that's not the point, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's totally. It's hard to kind of like stick with that goal, but also be kind of like confident in uh, what the end result might be. But also realize, and I think what's interesting in songwriting is that I feel like there's certain songwriters that um, I, I, I feel like I... I enjoy the Bob Pollard way of writing songs and that it feels like another song will come along. <laughs> sure. You know, totally. and, and I feel that it doesn't cheapen it to me. Cause I think sometimes people say I've had discussions with like friends and they're like, you know, it's like a quantity over quality thing. And I'm like, you know, like, like people are like Willie Nelson puts out everything that he writes, you know, and yeah. I'm like, but there's a lot of good songs, you know? So it's sure. like the, if the end result is you still wrote a lot of good songs, I don't see what the point is. Like, you know, it's that, that tortured soul versus the person that can like just write songs to write songs is, yeah. you know, I don't know what the end sum game is, you know? Yeah, totally. That, um, I think that that's a really good point. And I think that like, for me also, it kind of cleared this writer's block that I maybe had for a long time. Um, where it's like, you know, like the, the, some of the songs on that record, I was like, I'm never going to finish these. And then to sort of like force yourself to finish them, at least in some, you know, maybe not like add a 
section, but I had to kind of like force myself to put a bow on this stuff that to me sounded really unfinished. I think that that you kind of like prove to yourself that like productivity isn't like finite, um, which I think is kind of the myth. Like, you know, like you shouldn't write a song unless you're like touched, you know, like anything, anything that isn't inspired is like garbage basically or trite. And like, that is not, I think that there is kind of like a, a middle point where it's like, you know, should you like, should guided by voices release four records a year? Uh, like in addition to all of Bob Pollard's like solo shit, like sure. Like if, you know, if he wants to do that, like that's fine. Are they all going to be amazing? Like, no. Um, but you know, also I think that it's important, you know, like I, when I had more time and was a kid, I used to do the, the thing where I would try and write 20 songs a day and stuff. And now I still try and write at least a piece of music a day. Um, because I don't want to like, because when you stop doing that or you get out of the habit of doing that, I've found that you start to slip back into that, like, oh, I'm not feeling particularly inspired. Like, I can't play music right now, which I think is some is some bullshit, you know? It's like you think about all the great songwriters and it's like, you know, like even the Beatles, it's like they were on tour when they, when they wrote Beatles for Sale and it was like, they were like, you know, they need a new, like the, the label called, they just ordered an album. Like you guys better come up with something. Yeah. Uh, and like, yeah, I don't know. I think that like you always got to like work for it a little bit, you know? Yeah. I, I think like when I think about it, like also with my own songwriting, it's like because you labored over it for four years doesn't mean it's going to be infinitely better because of that. Sure. There's a, you know, and, and it's like, I guess where it goes back to like jellyfish, it's like, well, that's complicated because I, I think it is better because of that. Sure. But I don't think that, you know, it's like, what what is what is a different version of this Jellyfish record that maybe was made for whatever the modern equivalent of, you know, like, I don't know, 50 grand? You sure. You know, like, it's, it might still be a good record, you know? Sure. Like, because I feel like the songs are there regardless. Right. And these bells and whistles are nice and they make it the record it is, but it's like... I mean, I don't, I don't know what the right answer there is. You know, like I don't know if it makes it better because there are certain things where it's like, is, uh, I don't know, is is Daniel Johnston or Daniel Johnston songs better because of the fact that they're, you know, it's kind of a simpler thing. You know, it's like it's that's that's like a weird thing where where it's like people to make hard fast rules about what things are and that's how you get a creative product gets strange to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, And yeah, I think it's, I think kind of like what you were getting at. Like I totally have had that experience where you're like writing something and then your like mind starts to, like you start to think about things that like should not even be relevant to the process of just like writing music, you know? And I think that that is always like super polluting. Um, And I think that like the songs that I've, written that feel like the best ones and that people end up liking the most, I think, or the songs that I'm like, Oh, like I got you know, like I got this old piece of shit lying around or whatever. Like it's like, but the, but there are times where I'm, I'll be like writing a song and I'll be like, man, I can't wait to like, you know, like, uh, announce the pre-order and like have this song be, 
uh, like I really got a, a song. I really got to write a song that will like get a stereo gun premiere or something, you know, like just this, it's just like so polluting and it never really like, I just wish I could turn off my brain whenever I'm writing music and I've gotten better at it, but sometimes I still get carried away and, uh, it's like such a pain in the ass. Yeah. yeah I mean, the big thing that's been like a struggle for it, um, is been like, kind of like what naturally comes out of me is what I should be playing not like oh it has to sound like I don't know Badfinger or something you know yeah like it's like maybe I just can't really write that song and there's certain tricks and scales and stuff that I you know should probably work on more that would get me there but it's like like trying like to turn I guess I'm kind of agreeing with you like kind of turn off like that voice in your head that's like telling you it has to be a certain way totally and just kind of like write what naturally comes out, you know, totally. it's such a hard thing to like turn off that voice. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, and I think, I think that I, for me, it like sort of like I was saying, it's like, it starts to, there's more noise the longer I go without writing. And I think that like the, the pandemic has been like particular, particularly excruciating for that reason, because like in the beginning, at least there was no, well, I mean, it's been excruciating for a lot of reasons, but yeah. uh, but it was hard to like write for a while because I was kind of just like, well, what's the point? Like, who cares, you know? And I think that when I finally started to get back into it, um, there was really a lot, a lot of like, um, I felt a lot of that kind of like sort of that inner voice you're describing, and um, but now I'm that I'm kind of like in in the habit of doing stuff all the time. I feel like it's at bay yeah yeah i've had a lot of the what's the point and it really has like uh hindered my songwriting and i instead just watch a lot of movies and tv shows you know and but one of the things that also keeps telling me it's like well if there's no point and you do ultimately like writing songs then that's the only point i mean there's it's like there is technically there could technically be no point but that's also kind of freeing that it's like exactly that yeah. I don't have to think about the fact that I shouldn't have to worry about the fact that, uh, you know, will this get on stereo gum? <laughs> because if I just assume there's no point, then it's not going to get on stereo gum. And I created for the sake of creating, which was the original point of why I like burn a CD of a song I performed on. Totally. And that's should ultimately be the only thing that matters at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah. So that's, but then all these other things keep creeping in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it so, sucks. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I do appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about Jellyfish. I really like this record. I will now listen to the first record. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, outside of, I've heard a few songs from it um, with doing research, but, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing this record to me I, I think it's interesting to hear anyone talk about things that aren't you know like there's so many bands that it's like you know it's like people would give you they'll they'll just say nirvana and i'm not saying like that's to any discredit but it's like to kind of like get these little little snippets of a people's personality is the point of why i do this you know yeah that's awesome yeah thanks for having me welcome back Thanks again to Mo for coming on the pod. And a quick note, follow Mo on Twitter at Mo underscore Troper and on Instagram, just search that name. 
Check out Moe's Talk House article, Power Pop is Camp, and also, of course, Moe's most recent album, Deliton. Okay, next time on the pod, we're chatting with my friend, Devin McKnight of Manica, and previously of Speedy Ortiz, Grass is Green, and Philadelphia Collins. We talked about Deftones' 2000 album, White Pony, so tune in next week for that. Don't forget to check out our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod, and follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at spinningoutpod. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please think about subscribing to the Patreon. Every little bit counts and keeps us going. So thank you for that. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>